Hello. In this episode of Airs for Architecture, I speak with writer and theorist and Professor of History and Theory of Architecture at MIT, Mark Jarzembeck, about his 2023 book, Architecture Constructed, Notes on a Discipline, published by Bloomsbury. Airs for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of Airs for Architecture. I'm talking today to Mark Yarzhenbeck about his recent book, Architecture Constructed, Notes on a Discipline, published by Bloomsbury. But before we get to that, Mark, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Uh, Hi, I'm Rose. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you today. Uh, Yeah, my name is Mark Yarzhenbeck. I teach architectural history and theory at MIT. (laughs) I'm always impressed by the short intro, the short bio some people like to go on. did you train in architecture? Is that your background as an architect, or was it straight into his history and theory? No, I have an architectural degree from the ETH in Zurich. Uh-huh. So I did a, a diploma there, and I had a practice for about a, a year or so. Uh, before that, I was at the University of Chicago and majored in physics and philosophy. Um, and so this book, in in a sense, puts some of those strands together. Yeah. Yes, it's. Uh, it, I mean, you have a, a very storied publishing history, but this is, this feels quite, um, quite like you're tying things together. Like there's a kind of totalizing vision within it, uh, which is makes it a very elegant read. But, but I thought perhaps we could start with what your motivations for writing the book were at this particular juncture. I mean, books always have a kind of genesis, and as you say. Yours is all books, I suspect, have a quite long history, pre, uh, pre-life to them. But why why did you feel like this book was the one for the moment? Well, um, as I point out somewhere in the footnotes of the book, um, this book came about uh, through the lectures that I give it, to my students. So I'm in charge of a class that I call Thinking About Architecture. Uh, to the MRC students and part of the curriculum there. And many people, you know, would probably have tried to explain what are they, what is that class? Uh, they, I would probably say it's something like a theory class. Uh, and that would be its sort of conventional slot. But I don't like to use the word theory because it divides the world into theory and practice into this dualism again. And we're haunted and haunted <laughs> by endless crisis of dualism, which really annoys me. So the title class is thinking about architecture. So we try to think about it in many different ways. And over the decades, I begin to sort of uh, develop this, um, uh, the thoughts, you know, on this book. And then um, I thought, it, well, you know, it's it's very, to some degree, relatively personal, and no one would ever publish it, uh, <laughs> you know, and so um, over COVID, I uh, then decided to wrap it up and give it to the press, and here we are. Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting. Uh, it is a very interesting book because it does deal with yeah this perennial issue around the the dualism in in architecture. I mean, perhaps this is the du- This is the 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 split between thinking and making, is it not? Yeah, the split between thinking and making, which we seem to be stuck in, you know, it's sort of like, 
well, what's you know, is there an alternative to that? Well, you know, in 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 a way, there is. It's mm-hmm. just that we can't really imagine it. And this, what I'm some arguing in the book, is that that split is a construction. So when we think about construction, you know, we think of it through the lens of technology or the building industry or stealing glass or things like that. But what I'm arguing is that the discipline of architecture is itself a construction, a social construction. So it didn't just appear out of nowhere as a done deal, you know, even though we sort of think it's finished and it's there's no real alternative to it, that may be the case, but it's definitely something that has its own history. And how did we get to this place where this dualism is just sort of completely uh, natural? And then, you know, I sort of realized we really haven't asked that question, which seems to be a very logical <laughs> question from an historian, historian's point of view, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and if we sort of trace it back, you know, when did this social construction of this dualism um, appear? We, we wind up, of course, with, uh, with the Greeks. And so it's a long, long history that we have sort of naturalized and that we need to basically see and, and and bring into visibility. That's sort of the task of the book is to uh, not to necessarily critique it and say something like wrong with it as such, but to help us actually see it operating because we all know it's there. It's just like there's no, uh, you know, no one is surprised when you say that thinking and uh, and making are different. We all say, yeah, you know, it's, it's obviously right. So the answer, we know the answer you know, we just didn't don't know how it sort of got to be the answer mm. that was what I was trying to trace out in the book. And so you say we start with the Greeks, the origins of this kind of duality, this dualism starts with the Greeks. But I think at the very beginning of the book, in fact, it's right on the front page, you start with of the preface. You start with Alberti, Leon Battista Alberti. And it's him that sort of sets up for the modern epoch the modern period he sets up this kind of the architect as something distinct from the medieval idea of the master builder stonemason with bells on kind of thing is that right oh that's correct yes i'll start with alberti because he does sort of launch that dualism into the modern era Mm -hmm. and basically he says in his preface (laughs) That, um, you know, that if you want to make architecture into a discipline, mm-hmm. which is what we, we would sort of say what we have, you know, um, you need basically to talk to people who have read the books and know the field. Mm-hmm. It's very clear in, in, his, in saying that the builder, the faber, the, the person who makes the buildings, um, has to be sidelined in this conversation and does not really have a voice. And basically says the builder is an instrument. And he uses that word, an instrumentum. So if the builder is just an instrument, and instruments don't have opinions or voices, right? You know, I'd pick up a hammer. It it, it has no opinion about whether the nail is, <laughs> is hit the right way or not. You know, it's obvious to hit the nail and then shut up. So basically, Alberti says that the, the builders and contractors should basically shut up. And just be, be hammers, mm. and you know this is a uh, an astonishing claim when you think about it, 
And he's building on this tradition that comes out of uh, the, the Greek and classical idea um, that the intellectual speaks, that these are aristocrats, that aristocrats know something, and the builders who are not aristocrats and laborers, you know, they should basically be quiet and accomplish whatever has to be done. It's sort of not exactly like in the military, but it's it's just yeah. very clear that there's a chain of command. And I very want that chain of command to be with the architect. And and as I point out in the book, that this was somewhat ironic, because in that day and age, um, to be an architect, you could be a painter, you could be a gold. I mean, Brunelleschi was a goldsmith. I mean, <laughs> he has no architectural training. You know, you, people didn't have it. There weren't MITs and universities, you know, architecture schools in those days, right? You became an architect by becoming a builder, then working way up the ranks. So Alberti is saying, no, 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 no. I don't. That's not how it goes, you know. So he didn't have any substantial uh, evidence for the fact that the architect knows things better than the builder, but he was protesting against the idea of these upstart builders who were making all these things. And so it was a thin edge of a wedge. And basically today, it has completely been normalized, um, you know, across the field. It's a really interesting parallel, I wonder, whether whether that the alienation that various theorists and historians have written about of the modern age uh, and 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 trace its origin point back to to that period of enlightenment to the period of the beginning of the renaissance or the reformation i wonder if there's a kind of correspondence in what you're saying with say for example marx's description of the emergence of the working classes that the working classes are in a way a construction of a new middle class who generate them for to operate as a tool to operate as in that in in you know marx's analysis of the emergence of industrialism or modernity um and i'm i'm squeezing different concepts together there i admit but there's a kind of uh, an abandonment of a kind of reciprocity between the worker and the authority figure the lord of the manor whoever it is towards a kind of instrumentalizing of the the physical capacity of the working classes and a dismissal of their That's kind right. of intellectual knowledge, their lay knowledge, their vernacular knowledge. Oh, well, that's correct. I mean, Marx, of course, tried to invert that relationship, right? You know, the laborer is sort of on top and the laborer brings the types of knowledge base and epistemologies uh, that are that are necessary to redeem labor into the social world, right? Now, the the problem, let's say for me when I was writing this book, is that um, the architecture, to build architecture, uh, because it's such a, in other words, the architecture is, is not an industrial product, at least up until very recently. Mm -hmm. You know, it was still in required um, carpenters and bricklayers and ditch builders, you know, to make a building, you, you need, you know, a hundred different types of labors, you know, whereas Marx is basically talking about a type of industrial labor that comes out of mass production. And so that labor 
until you know very recently, you know, really didn't play itself out in the building industries. Hmm. So, um, so in other words, one can't, as much as one could say, yeah, Marx tried to solve it. It didn't trickle down, if you will, um, intellectually into the building industries because the building industries in the 19th century uh, was very dismembered um, by the capitalistic regimes of the time. You know, so the guilds were taken apart and, you know, it, it became a little bit like neoliberalism in, in a way, right? Every every person could become a carpenter, mm-hmm. you know, go out and try to make yourself, you know, th- you know, first by being a carpenter and then by being a master carpenter and then by being a master builder. And maybe by the end of your life, you know, you could call yourself an architect, you know, and things like that. So the Marxist model didn't fit architecture, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, in, in a real way. And it was a different type of labor. And so in a funny way, this old Greek separation between the thinking people, you know, um, and the doing people survived the Marxist critique, mm. right? It did just sort of like oil and water. They didn't quite know how to figure that out, right? Because it, the only only exception to that, I'm, I, I say, however, was in the um, in tall buildings, uh, skyscrapers and the like where you had steel and concrete, you know, where you had industrial scale uh, labor productions. And that's where the labor unions, of course, developed. But in domestic sphere, domestic architecture, houses, um, I mean, still today, we did a project, you know, for my barn in the back. And, you know, it was not much different from the Middle Ages, you know, in in terms of how labor was appropriated and uh, organized and you know, two or three carpenters come and they're on their own. They're not part of any union. And then two or three um, guys who do the shingles come and two or three guys who do the sheetrock, they come, you know, that type of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, in that sense, that type of uh, architectural production is, is you know, still very medieval. Mm. It's really interesting. The subtitle of the book, Notes on a Discipline, I think is something that... Uh, um, needs sort of unpacking i suppose and it's this idea of discipline which as i said in my notes to you yesterday which sorry for getting them to you so late um but i i think for the notion of a discipline perhaps would come as a surprise to some of the people that i teach perhaps all of the people that i teach um because architecture isn't seen as a discipline so much as a, a series of technological moves. It comes back perhaps to this idea around the tools, mm-hmm. particularly in contemporary architecture, which is highly technical and tool-based. The production and um, the design production and maintenance of architecture and its measurement in a way is all derived from technology of tools. So they come to architecture schools perhaps increasingly expecting to be, to acquire tool skills, which um, are directly related to regulation and law, um, and also product size, building product size. And they might be very ethical in their their view, like socially just or interested in various kind of uh, overarching social justice issues, but 
sometimes quite narrow. Um, but they wouldn't, I don't think, necessarily think of themselves as perhaps philosophically grounded or that concerned. Mm. Um, but I was, yeah. So, so the idea of the discipline, I think, is kind of interesting. And I would be really interested to hear what you, how you are defining discipline and how architecture is a discipline compared to, say, other disciplines within um, public discourse and, and academia. Great. Yeah, excellent question. That gets right to the matter uh, of the book because, um, you know, when I even when I was putting the word into the title, you know, the editors were going, oh, my God, discipline. Ooh, that's that's boring. And, you know, <laughs> people aren't going to like want to know that, you know. But I sort of insisted and they agreed. I mean, it's really what I'm trying to say is that uh, Berdy, um, that's why I started with him, makes a big deal about wanting to make a discipline that didn't exist at the time. Mm -hmm. What did he mean by that? Well, disciplines require libraries. They require books, a reading capacity, right, to understand that there's a past um, of a wealth of, of information that has to be collected. So there's no such thing as a discipline without a library, right? You know, and the library has to contain all sorts of things, right, about practice. So even though we think of architecture through, often through the lens of practice, all the schools of architecture will have libraries because that's where the discipline resides, right? That's the, 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 the semiotics of what a discipline is, is to have a library. And the better the school of architecture, I'm, I'm speaking maybe somewhat loosely here, uh, the better the school library will be. Um, and there's a school of architecture being created in China. And my friend is helping them, you know, buy a, thousands and thousands of books for the library. So that's the sign of a discipline, right? Now, it's, it's more than just, of course, that it has a, a library where you can go a repository of information and 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 things. It also has to have gatekeepers, you know, people that say, yes, you belong to the discipline or not. And so that's what our MARC degree is, right? MARC degree is our gatekeeping system. Um, and that means it has to have schools and it has to have tenure professors who are tenured. Um, it has to have criteria of how the teachers are tenured and how they're monitored um, and uh, so forth and so on, right? So the discipline isn't an abstract thing. It's a huge machinery of reality, right? Pedagogical briefs, right? We have a, a curriculum committee, right, <laughs> that, that that meets, you know, every every other month or so and goes over the things that we should be teaching or not teaching. We have NAAB giving us accreditation that approves uh, how we teach and so forth like that, you know. Um, the ACSA uh you know, or these, you know, these organizations in architecture, wherever they are in different countries, um, you know, help promote architectural practice in certain ways and so forth. So the discipline is huge. It's ginormous. It operates in uh, across dimensions, right, from, from, from teaching to practice, from buying books to tenure cases and so forth and so on. And it's so big in a way that you can't really put your arm around it, or right? you can't really say, you know, let's make a history of the discipline. So that's why the title is Notes, because there's no way 
you could even approach a type of history of this. I mean, it's just so complicated. It's like amorphous, right? Like a rubric's cube. You start in one side and you could end up another side and not even know the difference. So the best I could do was try to singularly point to this one particular aspect of the discipline and how it's constructed, which has to do with the vocabulary. So I'm saying that we have an advantage in that the word architecture is a dual word, right? It's made out of two words. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So, you know, music is one word, right? <laughs> Art is one word. Yeah, so I don't know. But architecture, right, is made out of two words that were put together. And it, it's not a word that was natural to the Greeks, right? The Greek in, invented this word. So it was a neolid, neologism, you know, in uh, the 6th century or 5th century BC. Um, so already then we sort of have to realize that as an invented word for the Greeks themselves, right, <clears throat> they were com combining two things that existed separately to try to sort of put them together. And we still haven't solved how to put them together. And so the book is trying to sort of say that this discipline because of the very word allows us like a um, X-ray machine to sort of actually see these two words and the history of this tension mm -hmm. between the arche, you know, let's say the thinker uh, or the creative type and the techne, which is the builder and the maker uh, type, right? And so the word and the discipline uh, coincide in that way, right? I mean, um, it's 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 not an old word. That's what I'm trying to say, right? It's actually, mm -hmm. as architecture goes, a, a very new word and very young word, right? It is, and this neologism still is with us today because we still haven't figured it out. Mm. I was talking today. I was doing some a couple of lectures this morning for an open day, and you have all of these fresh-faced 16, 17-year-olds and their eager-looking parents as you try and persuade them to part with a large section of the remnants of their youth and also the value of their house in paying for it. And you have to explain there's this very strange thing, as you say, where you, you, you want to, on the one hand, emphasize the disciplinary character of architecture. As you say, the library, the theory, the rubrics around which it plays. But at the same time, you want to persuade the parents that the student is going to be very eminently capable, particularly around uh, areas of practical concern, which is building. And so that tension lives, I think, even in the public imagination. It's not just a. It's not just a. Um, the discipline. The, the problem of the discipline isn't just one of the discipline itself. It's not a kind of internal anxiety, but it is actually a public anxiety, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that, that, that true. I mean, um, I mean, architecture <clears throat> always speaks to some sort of higher project. Mm -hmm. You know, when we talk to the builders, um, you know, ethical responsibility or sustainability or, you know, all these things are like, well, OK, I don't know, whatever, you know, <laughs> fine, you know. But architecture, because of its association with aristocracy and nobility and with thinking and with purposefulness and so forth, you know, um, and with theory, always glues to itself, right, these higher 
and more noble values, which is great. I mean, I'm not I'm not in any way protesting against that, right? Um, it's just that it becomes very quickly a a split in this mm-hmm. discipline between how to translate that into practical things, right? Um, so, you know, uh, my colleague and I, Vikram Prakash, we have an office called the Office of Uncertainty Research, and we do all sorts of studies. And we took a house in Seattle recently. This is in a Biennale project uh, to not this recent Biennale, but the previous one. And we looked at where everything came from. And it was a sustainable house. You know, the architect and the contractor said, you know, this is, you know, green, green, completely green. But most of that was really completely inaccurate. I mean, the the floor, the the sustainable oak floor, where it came, we figured it out where it, it came from, which was in southern Germany, from a forest there. It traveled twice around the world to get fabricated in Indonesia, uh, then to Korea. You know, I don't know if you call that sustainable. That's like, I mean, I don't know what the hell it is. You know, so I, I'm saying it is. You know, in other words, architects live in a weird world where we can sort of say things are sustainable. And and the clients go, yes, yes, yes. But the reality is when we get down to the builder building part of it, it's not, right? Mm. So these hypocrisies are sort of the dark side of that of that division between the arche and the build and the tecton, right? There's a good sides to it as well, but we have to understand that they're both good sides and bad sides. The, the mm. good side, of course, is when the architect tries to speak to the higher ambitions you know the ethical requirements uh you know whatever those may may be uh but the reality is that th- these aren't always implementable mm. or implemented the right way and we don't really want to admit that yeah you, you know you, you talk about the estrangement and you and you seem to suggest that that there is an origin point to this which i'm guessing is the birth of you know, I don't know if there's, I don't know if it's fair to say, but there there seems to be a kind of jumping from the, the classical period into the birth of the modern period, the Renaissance. Mm. And I don't know, but, but, but the birth of the Renaissance constitutes the, this new rupture period, which you describe as the moment at which there is this disastrous splitting of theory and practice. Um, why do we, so, so, why, why, why is this point seen as being significant? Okay. Why is- so, yeah. So basically, what I'm sort of saying is that Baroque, classical, these these concepts sort of don't exist in this world, right? In other words, the the moment uh, Socrates basically walked around with the smart young men of Athens, uh, who are all slaveholders. And Socrates calls the working people bonassos, um, and the actual bonasso people who were building the houses and cleaning them were all slaves. Hmm. So, in other words, he doesn't real feel uh, in his in, in you know he Socrates is the great hero of the intellectual world of the Western society, you know, because he's killed himself, you know, in the name of you know uh, uh, wanting to preserve the integrity of his uh, thoughts and he sacrificed himself, you know, literally for that. And so he's, you know, 
for a variety of reasons, you know, seen as, you know, one of the great intellectuals of our, of our age. But basically, he didn't really think too hard about this, the separation between thinking people and the working class. The working class of these uh, aristocrats in, in, in Athens at that time were all slaves who had been conquered or from other peoples and learned how to do a skill. Um, and they survived in that way. And uh, Plato was even worse. And Plato, you know, was much more vertical about things. And yeah, these people should shut up and do, do stuff, right? And so, you know, so in other words, that history is the history of a modernity, if you will, that regardless of whatever style or whatever other things, that never goes away. So what, what, changes is in some sense the instrumentality of that core principle so alberti re tries to institutionalize it into let's say now it's something called a discipline which mm -hmm. didn't exist in the middle of medieval period right so he tries to create ex nihilo a discipline and that took a long time for it to develop so mit was the first school of architecture at in the united states in the 1860s, when it was created by uh, a, a man, Professor Ware, W-A-R-E, who was, you know, very insistent that to be called an architect, you need to have a degree. You can't be a, a glorified contractor. Mm -hmm. And in the United States at that time, 95% of the architects were glorified contractors who just called themselves an architect because they could. <clears throat> so, you know, the... AIA, you know, uh, the Institute for Architecture in, in, in England and other places began to say, no, you to be an architect, you have to have degrees, right? Now, Alberti was going, thank God, you know, you know, but it, it, it took, you know, from, you know, 1500 to, to 1840, right? It took 350 years for finally someone to listen to me. So that sort of long the long nature of the discipline. I barely thought it through, but there was no MITs at that time. There were no schools of architecture in Florence or anywhere, right? Um, so it took a long time for this idea of a school of architecture to basically uh, come into play. And the art school of architecture basically said, we're training architects, not builders. And so the first thing that Ware did was collect the drawings. He made the, a library, which we still have, you know, uh, he bought all these these books. He made pedagogies, right? Um, he he taught the students how to speak French because if you want to be uh, a, a a a spokesperson for cultural, you know, things, you have to learn French because that's where the Beaux Arts was, right? You mm -hmm. have to be able to understand that language, right? So that's what I mean by the discipline um, had to have been created and born, but it took a long time. For that to happen, so that modernity is, in some sense, not a, a a a sort of a moment in the traditional sense we think of, let's say, a classical age or uh, the Baroque age, and then a modern age, right? I'm sort of saying that modernity was born in Nietzsche, in that in the slaveholding class in 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 Athens, but took centuries, centuries, and centuries and centuries to develop. The, the actual idea of what a discipline sort of is and and sort of mature in that way, right? Like good wine, mm -hmm. it, it sort of takes some time, right? <clears throat> but, and as I said, 
earlier, in other words, the Marxist critique of labor didn't get into this because it was still about for where at building an elite class, mm-hmm. you know, not a class of builders. We had plenty of builders in the United States. Every other person was a builder of some sort because of just the way, you know, built, you know, America had to be made, you know, every farmer, you know, was making their own houses and so forth like that, you know, and where wanted, you know, to think of the French and the Beaux-Arts system <clears throat> as producing an elite class of people who were called a different way. And you had to then exclude the builders from that. You had to tell them, no, you're, you're just different, you know, mm-hmm. different pay scale, different, you don't get to talk to the clients, uh, things like that. I wonder if there's something about this sort of uh, this 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 character as you say that the way that architecture has not been affected by the same kind of class discourse um that that other um arts-based industries or creative industries or material culture industries have been because uh, again going back to this, these couple of talks i gave this morning you explained to students how, how how an architecture degree in britain is structured which is you do a three-year degree and then you go out into practice and you can earn a certain amount of money, but you've got to find that job yourself. And we don't help you. I might post a few emails out if an employer writes in and says we're looking for a part one or a part two architect. Um, but we don't help you, and then they come back. And and in a way, there is something inherently, because architecture has this this belief in genius, and it does, even if it pretends it doesn't, even when we kind of talk about the constructed nature of the discipline or even when we talk about the pluralist nature of, uh, you know, Aladonikov's books or Albania Yaneva's books about the way that architecture actually is produced through a kind of concoction, a network of people. Uh, Deleuzean kind of ideas of the... the... Mm-hmm. In a way, we still look for the genius like and so it doesn't really matter if the discipline offers forward a structured uh, kind of curriculum of things to know because ultimately we're always on the lookout for the man or woman who interprets it the best and so it's sort of it's sort of inevitably uh individualistic in this way because of its because of its uh, its strange identity as something between a science, something between an art, something between building construction, something between I don't know contract management and law, and because it's a master of a jack of all trades and and a master of quite a few of them as well. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. No. It does. It does. Um, the. Um... Yeah, the let's say the star architect phenomenon, you know, of the nineties and two thousands and so forth, like that, um, you know, was a you know a symptom of how how culture um, and even the profession <laughs> or the discipline mm-hmm. uh, promotes uh, and self promotes this idea of genius. Um, and in the book, I talk about how Immanuel Kant, the great father of liberal politics, you know, we all, you know, who, who cannot like uh, Emmanuel Kant for his sort of idea of uh, his political point of view, but he basically very clearly <clears throat> said there are two types of work. <clears throat> there is the work of genius, 
And the work of a genius produces what he calls an opus, using the Latin phrase. And the work uh, of a working of a worker, <clears throat> you know, the dish digger, uh, is arbeit, and he uses a German word, <clears throat> arbeit or arbeiter, you know, a worker, a worker, you know. And so he once again in the Enlightenment, you know, reinforces the fact that there are two types of labors, right? Mm -hmm. One is the work of the genius who makes a cumulative labor, opus, like a, you know, uh, Le Corbusier's. Uh, Every complete, right? Which is exactly what uh, Kant would be talking about is the act of a genius, right? Making cumulative less uh, product production. Whereas the worker, the arbiter who just does work for money, is what he says, you know, the workers do. They're only paid for it. So there's no accumulation there. There's no either accumulation of, of, of work. Of, of money for them, right? He's not, not completely not interested in that, but there's also no cultural accumulation. Mm. They just do something, right? So it doesn't, there's no, it's Teflon, right? <clears throat> and so that distinction, you know, is a nightmare distinction uh, when you think about it. Mm. You know, it, it sort of takes the, the, once again, the Greek distinction between thoughtful uh, young men and the working slave class, you know, and just redefines it, you know, uh, into the 19th century between two types of working people, mm -hmm. the creative people and the the, the, the dull arbiter. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, we can't get away from it. No. And till today we have, yeah, the idea that architects, architecture is a place where we could find and nurture certain types of geniuses. Now the irony is that we want those people. <laughs> we don't. It's not like we say we don't want geniuses. We want smart people. Um, but can we have smart people uh, without having this dualism? That's mm. what I sort of say. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. because you talk about sort in a way that through the use of language you're exploring. You seem to me to be exploring also because you use this word architecton and you put non in the middle of it so it's a neologism of your own which is like an ontecton which i think is which is good because it because it still trips off the tongue nicely right. um, <laughs> but there is this in the way that you describe it there is there are these silent aspects because you you cross out the non as well because we we're not we're not allowed to even engage with the idea that the non is there and there is this repeated refrain throughout architectural history of getting back in contact with the the the, the building, you know, Heidegger's um, idea or Rudovsky's idea or, I mean, any number of theorists have, have tried to get us back to there and people are still doing it now. But I quite like this idea of the silent, uh, but, but the way that disciplinarity also anonymizes significant aspects of what we do as a way of is it i suppose is it as as a mechanism to um elevate and actually establish the discipline D what i mean is does the discipline exist without this anonymization is the silencing of the worker, but also the silencing of the technologies that the worker uses, the tools. You talk a bit um, in the book about scaffolding, all uh, the, the the languages. I mean, the, the vast array of technologies that actually enable 
the arche to do its thing. There's something quite pernicious about that. But but yeah, it does the discipline actually require that silencing? Y yes, yeah. I, I you know it's I think the architecture field is getting better at that in the last decade or so. Uh, but so um and you know, and I talk in, in the book, I'm not making it all dark, you know, doom and gloom. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, the, the point is, in some senses, uh, perhaps a strange optimism that that we can actually uh, see see this better today than we could before, mm -hmm. um, and not get rid of it because that's never never going to happen. But begin to, in some sense, work better, uh, you know, better better with it. But the old old ways still persevere in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, at MIT campus, for example. Uh, there are a lot of corridors, uh, very famously infinite, called infinite corridors. Um, and I'll, you walk along these corridors and, you know, every hundred feet or so you come to a black door with no number on it. And these doors uh, belong to the cleaning contingent. And, you know, during the day, you never see see them open, right? But if you go there like six or seven o'clock, you see someone going in there or someone coming out and they're basically where the mops are kept and uh, the sprays and the cleaning, you know, there's a sink in there and all that type of stuff. So the, the, this is once again, that, that, that silencing bit, you know, where architecture, the architecture literally puts into it, its fabric, like Swiss cheese, these spaces throughout the, the building that are inhabited by invisible people who come out at six p.m., do their do the cleaning and then disappear. So you don't encounter them during the day ever, and that may be convenient for them as well as you know for us because they have these big carts that they drive around you know with the, with the stuff and you don't want that interfering with the flow of traffic in the corridors. So there's a lot of reasons why it may, makes sense, but it also speaks, however practical it may be, uh, to the reality that. They're these people who maintain the building are invisible. We absolutely have no idea who they are, right? Unless you actually go up and talk to them and introduce yourself, which I've done on a number of occasions. Um, and these are the people who are responsible for keeping the building going, right? So this is just one little like a tapas example of how the arche silences the presence of the tecton, in this case, having to do the maintenance crew. And, you know, I don't necessarily, there might be a thesis project to figure out how can we do something different, right? Mm -hmm. But this is the classic sensibility, I would say, you know, um, of, of that relationship between the creative people doing the work during the day and the tecton people cleaning the building at night, invisible, nameless uh, people, mm. right? Um, you know, and underappreciated and and unknown right so that you know i was on saying is that even though i think we're, we're getting better <clears throat> we still have inherited the the burden of trying to see and understand these situations mm. so another and another example which is you know maybe get back to the core of the discipline i put that in my book i said in other words if you want to do a, a, a theory course and you mentioned uh for example, Craftsman, you will read probably uh, Richard Sennett's book called The Craftsman. Mm -hmm. 
or you mentioned Heidegger, you know. Now, the uh, Library of Congress system that we use throughout the United States, which was created in the 1890s, is sort of right out of sort of Alberti's, you know, uh, dream world, right? The It's ranked from smart to dumb. So you have theology, <laughs> uh, you know, and philosophy. These are Bs, right? And it goes down, 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 down. And the, anything written by people in the working class are in the Ts or Us or Vs. So if you're actual craftsman and you write a book about craftsmanship, it's going to be categorized in probably in the T. Whereas Richard Sennett, who I don't know if he's ever lifted a hammer in his life, you know, writes a whole massive book on the craftsman. Um, and he's with the smart people at the top of the heap, B, because he's supposed to know something. So this radical displacement and alienation between the smart people who talk about craftsmen who are elevated into the Bs and the actual craftsmen whose book is down there in the T's and you don't even like hardly would ever read their stuff is a symptom, another symptom of this uh, dualism that, that is very pernicious. Mm. Your book is divided into 21 sections, you know, six, seven, seven sections with three chapters each. And, and, and there's so much in it. And it's, you know, it's beautifully written, beautifully illustrated. But there was one area that I was interested around, which was uh, that I picked on in my, in my questions to you. And I just thought we could make perhaps, because as you say, your book isn't doom and gloom. It certainly doesn't have that tone about it. It's a, a, a book with a, a great deal of um, positivity and dissecting the problem without um yeah uh, i don't know without killing the patient yeah exactly yeah <laughs> without killing the patient is a very good way of putting it but i picked on this word libidinal that you use and i wanted to understand that you said and and you connect it to deconstructivism um and i was wondering if we could have talk a little bit about that is there in in the disciplinarity in this elevation of the um the the intellectual content of the discipline there is also in a peculiar kind of way a fetishization of the making side of things and, and almost in a way an eroticization of the making and you see that in say Rudowski's work or Gottfried Semper's work or William Chambers, where there's this attempt to understand the origins as if it's a purer and more honorable and in a way more real way of being or of designing buildings. I mean, you see it obviously in Logier's Noble Savage, where there's this idea about like honesty and integrity, and it's deeply colonialist and deeply problematic in many ways. And I was wondering whether you could talk about this word and, and where you see it kind of revealing itself in late modernism and, and in, in the contemporary period. Well, I think you summarize it very elegantly. Um, you know, basically, I was trying to point out that when Corbusier <clears throat> celebrates the engineer, um, you know, this is a sort of masculinist fantasy. So it's not just a, a disciplinary project anymore, right? It, it sort of leaks into... A, a space where we have a man talking about the the you know disguisedly of course uh, talking about the value of the engineer who brings clarity and rationality and precision you know to bear and 
so this uh, attachment that the Arca has to the to maker to the to the person who makes these things in this case the engineer right is is not a practical one you know or it is I say it's a libidinal one because it sort of brings out uh, an implicit sort of erotic relationship but you know of uh, of the masculine uh, uh, project which is strong and clear and and rational. And so I, I use that as a way to begin to parse out certain sets of buildings that I think play play in that. Um, you know, so well, one of them was you know Ando's building, um, which was the um, the Modern Art Museum at Fort Worth, where he has these sort of figure like uh structural system is it's a post with that there's like a v on top of it, it looked like a man holding up the building you know uh walking down <clears throat> and so i'm saying you know in other words where the it, it's honesty in holding in where we're seeing the structure is offset by the fact that structure is doing its work right it's powerful it's strong it's masculine you know mm-hmm. um and Whereas um, there are other ways to, you know, to to do this. And I talk about, uh, you know, the Helmut, Helmut Jan's book, uh, building, you know, in Chicago, which, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think is going to get torn down um, at the Illinois State Center, where we have more of a weird scaffolding effect. You know, in other words, there's no strong, singular, masculine set of beams and posts, right? But a type of uh, filigree of, of of lightweight scaffolding things, right? Yeah. Um, and it's 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 a different type of more gentle libidinal project, <laughs> you know. Um, and a romantic I, libidinal, rather yeah, than yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, um, it's not. It's, it's very technological. That yeah. building, you walk in there and you feel like you're in a spaceship of some sort. But it, it, unlike the Ando building. Where we, we we see the classic, uh, sort of a classical idea of st- structural stability and masculinity, here we have to figure out a slightly different understanding of what we're seeing here, right? In this sort of weird floating uh, scaffoldy stuff that you know it doesn't seem to be holding together very well, right? It's like a veil almost, you know. So. The I'm sort of protesting against a little bit the tendency in architecture to sort of think that structure has to be, uh, you know, powerful, mm. in, you know, and uh, and and this libidinal aspect is um, you know comes out, um, and you know it's for someone to decide whether they like that or not. I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of like not exactly neutral on it. I, I think it's a easy. It's an easy place to be, you know, for architects to to assume a type of masculine assumption about engineering. That's mm. what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, I think sort of a weird libidinal, libidinal facility, whereas I'm looking for the architects who try to go past that, not fall into that trap. Yeah. Um. We've talked a lot about the the kind of this this idea of rupture. How do we mend this rupture? You you said you know you think things are heading in the right direction, and they probably periodically do. How do we take that right direction and make it? How 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 do we 
how do we pl not just plaster over but how do we actually resolve a little bit of this dichotomy if it's possible given all that we've said is it if it's possible no it's very possible you know i think um it's 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 a little bit how we we teach you know i mean mit i love all my colleagues and they're really great and i have a lot of fun you know knowing them and so forth but basically mit like many design schools right uh, doesn't look at the building industries as something you would teach talk about right so it doesn't look at construction um as a a, a something you would talk about in a theory class right <laughs> so in my thinking about architecture class we talk a lot about construction construction histories and it's 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 uh, ideologies and its perspectives i'm not teaching them how to make buildings i'm not teaching them about how to construct i'm teaching them that construction is in some sense a presence right in fact 90 you know in the united states 90 i think it's like 98 percent of all buildings are not made by architects you know mm -hmm. Ar architects just come in um for the the either the millionaires who want a villa or for skyscrapers or large buildings and so forth like that um you know just they just announced today a large uh you know 10 building campus you know outside of boston huge ginormous um and you know i'm i doubt an architect was involved in that you know <laughs> it just looks like something you just you know press a button on a computer and you get a dumb building and you know the real estate market knows how to make buildings mm. they can their sleep they don't need an architect you know except to maybe sign the paper and to give it to the city so we're we're facing a, a dilemma is that the basically the tecton world the world of the builders and the makers and the fabricators right uh, is basically eaten away by the developers who you know give all these people their jobs right and which is great but they don't really give them a voice either Right, they take sort of the worst part of it and make that into architecture. Mm. And you know, I think there have been a lot of uh, people who, you know, exist in the world of makers and in the world of fabricators and so forth, who are really trying to assert themselves um, as having a a, a voice. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a little bit. I, I mean, I think digital fabrication has done a lot of that labor. Um, and I, 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 I applaud that. I'm not always happy with the results, but that's, you know, maybe just a, a different question, you know. <clears throat> so I think that's like one place where we can begin to see a, a type of, a, you know, creative work that comes from the making of things that doesn't just champion the romantic idea that making things by hand is the best way to go, you know. Um, you know, that that's fine if you want to make a barn up in Vermont and you want to do it by yourself. Absolutely great. But it doesn't upscale into, you know, uh, you know, larger things. Mm. So I think we're 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 moving in that in that direction. But my point in the book is that these old systems are not going away. We're not changing in the United States the Library of Congress system. We're 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 not changing, you know, the idea that design schools teach towards brilliance, you know, towards the genius, you know, and things like that. That's a very good, a very interesting and provocative point to finish on. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, much, Mark. I've greatly enjoyed speaking to you. Ambrose, it was great to chat with you. And, uh, you know, uh, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to talk about the book.
Alberti said a man can do all things if he but wills them. That's obviously nonsense, but they may do one thing, and that's buy and read Mark's book. Thanks to him for the conversation and Bloomsbury for the book. Links to both are in the podcast description like normal. Thanks for listening. <laughs>